Have you found a sufficiently uh, suitable place to broadcast from? Well, yeah, it's just that our house is um, full of people uh, who are doing noisy, noisy work. <laughs> None so of them are welcome. That, <laughs> no, they're, they're, well, three of them are welcome. The other t the, um, they're all welcome because they're, 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 they're helping, our, helping us improve our house. Uh, the, the, some of the jobs have overrun, which is not, you know, not ideal, but no one's criticising. We, you know, sometimes we all struggle to meet deadlines. Is it Nick Knowles and Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen? <laughs> no, do you know what? Oh, I, no. I, I, I would welcome Nick Knowles into my house under any circumstances, <laughs> but particularly now, it would make me happy. It's like having a full-time job trying to manage it all for both of us. It is, I'm considering, considering going into project management. Well, actually, well, Stephen will tell you that his delightful partner, Katie, is an incredibly good project manager when it comes to home maintenance work. Is that so right? perhaps you could employ Katie to help you. I think Katie's rates are beyond me, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. And you have to you have to put up with the, the temper that goes with it. So yes, there is a there is a quality level of organisation, but you also you need to avoid things that are being thrown at you at the same time. Yeah, but you need that in a project manager. You yes. need that sort of sense of fear. That's what temper keeps, keeps you on time. Yeah. Someone throwing concrete at you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that sounds that sounds more serious. But is this the, the Alex Ferguson approach to project management? The hairdryer treatment. Yes. Well, maybe, got maybe wet there's pasta. enough. Maybe, yeah, yeah exactly. Wet there's pasta. enough dampness in the house, and maybe you do need a hairdryer. <laughs> it would certainly help. No, so I, I have found a, a um, yeah somewhere relatively quiet to broadcast. I apologise for my lateness. I hope that you won't be all passive aggressive with me. Well, we'll soon find out. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food if they turn up on time. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, who travelled to the northeast and didn't catch COVID. Andy Hinchcliffe, who travelled to Portugal and then the northeast and didn't catch COVID. And Stephen Wyeth, who didn't travel anywhere but still caught COVID. You can run, but you can't hide, even in your own house from it. But the surprising thing, Steve, you look really well. You do look quite well. You do. You're glowing. I mean, we should, we should make this clear. That, it's... that comes with the illness. Yeah. <laughs> we should make it clear no one is suggesting it's a hoax. That this is not, we're not, this is not a kind of no. anti-vax podcast. This, that is absolutely not our, <laughs> if our anything, stance. It's just that Steve happens to look quite well. The, the opposite is that it, it, it's indiscriminate. It doesn't matter how young, healthy and good looking you are. Mm -hmm. You can be affected by it quite badly. So let that be a lesson for everybody out there. It's important to suggest that Stephen's um, croaky voice isn't anything to do with COVID. It's the fact that because he is consigned to his home for another week or so, uh, is that he basically got absolutely smashed last night and tore the place up. So he's a little, <laughs> he's a, a little bit croaky as a result. I, I, I had, I had uh, been taking, uh, taking the opportunity to think, well, I might as well just you know, have a couple of beers until, uh, until a, a COVID nurse called to check in on us a couple of days ago and said, you are drinking lots of water. I, I cannot stress enough how dehydrating COVID can be. Make sure you're drinking lots of water. So immediately the bottle of beer gets put aside <laughs> and he's moved on to the aqua. Are you, are you in some sort of loft annex? I'm in the loft, yeah. I, I haven't, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only up here because the rest of the family are in the house and want to be able to get on with things without me sort of chatting to you goons in the kitchen. So right. uh, you've, not been, you're not, you've been, not been banished? No, no, we all have it. I've not been, I'm, I'm not isolating up here. I'm up, in my, thank, thank, I'm up in my little commentary studio. Thankfully, I have been able to continue to work due to the... Uh, innovative ways that we are currently doing things with BT Sport. So I've been uh, able to commentate from home. So and again, Steve... people are saying that actually COVID-riddled Steve's yep. commentary is better than normal. So It's a little breathier. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, a little, it's a little bit harder to Sexy. get the air into the sexier. lungs but, but, but between the big moments in the game. Oh, that's I, a great cross, I have, isn't it? It has. Oh. It's, been like, it's been like commentating with a toddler sat on my chest. It, it's quite sort of, quite concerning that, the, that a lot of the symptoms are sort of familiar to you from colds or flu, but the, the thing of having sort of like this, this feeling of sort of pressure on your chest and not, not being able to fill your lungs is, is, is quite discombobulating. The food is... Chinch being self-sufficient because his wife remains in Portugal. What uh, pasta surprises made by Andy Hinchcliffe have oh. you been enjoying so far in your few days alone? I am I am cooking pasta surprise for the rest of the family while Nicola is away, but that's a week away. This week, I will mainly be living on crumpets because I, I have, yeah, I'm going to go to the soup. I'm going to get lots of items and cook something, but I'm not. I'm just going to get loads of crumpets and put different toppings on them to keep me alive. This is how we find Chinch at the end of days when he's not re- not returning our calls and we get concerned enough to go around and knock on the door surrounded by crumpet wrappings Butter and Butter dripping down pop my vast chin. Watching the, premier, the premiership years from the mid-90s. <laughs> oh, no, no, I won't be doing that. Um, the football is Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Is it about loving football? Yeah, we're kind of talking about you, yeah. really, aren't we? Really? You have often mentioned on Set Piece Menu how you saw football as a job, one which you mostly enjoyed, but that it would appear was the beginning and the end of it for you as a player anyway. So we're asking, do you have to be a football fan to be a football player? Chinch, of course, would resoundingly say at this point... Well, that's an interesting question. Let's talk about it for about mm. half an hour. While Arsenal's Ben White admitted to never watching a game, even if he enjoyed playing in them. So do you have to be a football fan to be a football player? Uh, that is all to come. But before that, two important housekeeping notes. Uh, the first is something that you've heard before, that we are doing SPM 250 live from the... Uh, can I do that without Martin Tyler having a go at me for... Or maybe just asking me to give him money? Live! from the National Football Museum on Thursday, November the 4th. It's a seven o'clock start, a seven o'clock start, and will only cost you eight pounds plus a booking fee. And you can get 10% off as well by using the discount code SETPIECEMENU, all one word. That's Thursday the 4th of November. Head to nationalfootballmuseum.com for tickets. Please buy tickets. And also uh, you will find links via our Twitter and Facebook uh, pages. Uh, Now, the second thing is something that we are announcing which is accompanied, you'll be pleased to hear, by exactly no brass instruments. Um, There have been, over the years, multiple requests, that's more than one, that uh, aggregate to an almost clamour for us to do a live show in London. Well, those entreaties have at last been met with an... Okay, go on then. We are bringing SPM to that there London in December. Now, this is, as we say in the entertainment industry, a soft launch, which um, merely alerts you to something very important because we don't want to overload you with the kind of specific information that will dilute the message. Also, we don't know that specific information yet. Uh, The message, though, is this. Please help us to fill a very small venue in London because otherwise we'll be very embarrassed and probably significantly out of pocket. Or alternatively, you wanted it, now prove it. Um, Actually, come to think of it, those two messages... um, are slogans that will not really go well on a poster. So how about this? Set Piece Menu's fifth anniversary show, live in London. Yes. Do we know from our listener demographic how many London fans we have? Put it this way. If there aren't 200, we're (laughs) 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 
Uh, so, date, venue, and ticket details will be released over the coming days. That's why it's a soft launch. Please keep an eye out on at Setpiece Menu on Twitter, on facebook.com forward slash Setpiece Menu, and be prepared to change all your plans so that you can make us all feel better about ourselves. You can get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Buffalo John Wood, not from Huntington Beach, is where we start. He has an email that is very much sales pitch, dressed as content. Hello, University Challenge, only connect, mastermind, and pointless. I have just purchased tickets for myself and a friend to attend your second live show, and after attending the first one, I have to say I am quite excited. Will we get more SPM After Dark, where Chinch tells us the real reason that Fitz Hall's nickname was one size? (laughs) They just want dirty sexual stories, don't they? Filthy. Or will Hugh blow his hunting horn live on stage in front of a packed audience? Nope. Maybe we get a live Reacher feature again, and if there is time... Some football chat. Very much looking forward to some swearing and hoping for some uncensored opinions with all liable-worthy details included. Uh, keep up the good work as always. That's John Wood of the Liverpool Woods. And um, the answer to most of those questions is no. You're paying out pounds. Don't be ridiculous. Um, Rich Reardon is our buffalo in bootle. Dear Tucker, Zamo, Gonch and Roland. Uh, you have to Roland? Be- Wait a minute. Am I Roland? You are Roland. Oh, yeah. come on. All right, fellas, I see that Billy Big Time from America is inviting you all to record a pod from his hot tub in New York or whatever, but he's unwilling to stump up any dollars to get you there. Well, fear not. You can come to my gaff in Bootle anytime. What's more, <laughs> I'll pay the megabus from Manchester to Liverpool. You'll have to buy the tickets yourself, but I'll give you the three quid back when you get here. Not only do I do a fantastic skinheads on a raft, which is beans on toast and something from the 1980s, I'm not entirely sure is politically correct that we should mention it anymore, but still, I've done it. But I will also happily show you around all the sites. The docks at Twilight have a strange beauty. The eco-friendly Asda is a thing of wonder. And some of the boozers are full of joy and delight. As you can imagine, I'm going to joy and delight are actually the first names of two locals. Anyway, let let me know. I don't have a hot tub, but you can take turns in the kids' paddling pool out the back if you like. Uh, further to you briefly touching on Jamie O'Hara and his um, nonsense last week, a story, he says. This bit is definitely true. When he was 21, then Spurs player O'Hara was on loan at Millwall. He started for them in a game at Carlisle in October 2007 and was so bad that he was hauled off at 35 minutes into a 4-0 win for the Cumbrians. This much is true. The next bit has been told to me by a couple of people and I wish is also true. O'Hara thought... I'm a Premier League player. I'm not having this getting subbed in the first half, Lark. Stormed out of Brunton Park, got a taxi to the station and jumped on the first train back to London. Well, apparently he got arrivals and departures mixed up. So he actually got on a train from London, Euston. Next stop, Glasgow Central. <laughs> I really, really hope it's true. Keep up the good work, chaps. Uh, that's from uh, Rich. Yeah, um, if you're going to be angry, be angry in the right direction. It's very important. Um, Nick Adams is in New York, but has not invited us to host a show in any hot tubs that he may well own. He writes in response to last week's SPM 253 on whether we're celebrating the wrong things in football. Distinguished gentleman, he begins, on Newcastle. I'm sorry, get used to it. You invited the devil in to run your football clubs, and he came. He brought along with him Pep and Klopp and world-class players everywhere but Burnley. And now, after you have been supping with the devil all these years, you realise what it means. The devil's teams win the trophies. And there will also be a Myanmar-owned team and a team owned by Gulf Oil and so on. Do the fretting, the press is filled with it, but it seems a little late. The deal was struck whenever the ownership rules were written. Britain wanted a free market in football and they got it. I should say there are lots of exclamation marks in this particular email. And as you say, everyone is implicated because so many people, including you and me, live off the 
the publicity, the public interest and the money that sloshes through the system. There's so much money that you can give a podcast away for free and I don't pay either through ads or subscription. <laughs> well, you can do if you want to. You wouldn't get much more out of it, but still. Since the rules for ownership are unlikely to change, I'd love to hear what you think will make the current system healthier. If the top four are more, le- more or less locked up for the foreseeable future, okay, a little accidental mismanagement will open a place or two here and there, and we'll regularly be watching two English teams in the Champions League final, does that put a new slant on the Super League or even on the Europa Conference League? Or can we imagine a Premier Championship Cup or an England-Scotland League Cup with teams in England and Scotland, not national teams? Thinking of ways to prioritise the competition of comparable teams, as they have done in the Nations League, rather than the mismatches. Yes, yes, an upset is always possible, but too often you hear the match was men against boys or so-and-so never really had a chance. Asking me to get stuck into Norwich because they play properly when they lose every game in the Premier League seems rather patronising and not a lot of fun. Many thanks, Nick Adams, who took us through a whole range of emotions in that particular email. That was outstanding. Yeah, I, love, I, love the, I love the idea that, uh, that football's ills are exemplified by the fact that we can afford to do this for free. <laughs> There's so much money in football that that's how bad it's got. Lads can afford to just sit in their houses and talk football for nothing. That know. that is very much like Kate's view. <laughs> <laughs> but add, add to that, Gemma also. Yeah. Does does Kate have a pen name and is it Nick Adams? <laughs> could be. It's, I mean, that is she has she's expressed most of those thoughts. He's right though. Like, or she could be could be Kate under a pseudonym. Uh, the. Yeah, the, the Newcastle is a symptom, not a cause, and that that is a much broader conversation about about the Premier League and its its ownership neutrality and its willingness to welcome anybody in as long as they, they wave enough cash under their noses, and the way that everything is kind of subsumed by the greater glory of the Premier League and making sure everyone's interested and all that stuff. What you do about it, I have no idea. I don't. I, I, there is not a solution out there that it's interesting that six months ago we were all talking about um kind of regulators and making sure fans have a say and and now certainly the non-commentary bit of the sky coverage of the newcastle tottenham game uh, the commentary was excellent i understand but the the non-commentary bit was was very much isn't this great because there's now kind of i think clock called it a, you know a power rises in newcastle type thing it's it, for the product, if all you think about is your product, then it's it's what you, this is exactly what you want. And Nick's right; they've they've kind of made that they've made that covenant. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will return to the Newcastle game uh, a little bit later uh, via Mr. Andrew Hinchcliffe, uh, who was part of the commentary and therefore the commentary was excellent. Um, so when previewing Monday's game between Arsenal and Crystal Palace, Ben White, when did he become Benjamin White? By he, the way? He, he declared he in declared. that same interview that it's actually Benjamin in a, in a sort of 2021 version of Andrew Cole. So, so I think we should refer to him now, since everyone had this conversation in in the, in the newsletter about the pronunciation of foreign of foreign yes, names. Yes, I saw this. Yes, and you made it an excellent point, Rory. Well, it's interesting that that my general principle and that this is this will sound horribly like boastful, and that's fine. But as someone who speaks three foreign languages, my and can read a fourth, my my view has always been that if you if you give if you do your best then that's what matters. So you might not get the exact pronunciation pronunciation of Joao right, but as long as you're making an attempt and you're not saying, oh, I'm just gonna call you John because I can't manage Joao, then, then, you, then you're fine. As long as people understand that you're trying to say their name, you're showing them the respect of trying to say their name correctly, then that's fine. And for commentary, I think it's the same, that the that commentators get given full lists of the correct pronunciations. And occasionally some names are quite hard to say, 
that's that is an, a, a, a nice email, a kind of respectful email, pointing out that that's actually an expression of privilege. But it's not. It's the opposite of privilege. A lot of people who are not from Britain can't say my name. It doesn't offend me yeah. as long as they make an attempt. It, that's fine. I think if they if they if they kind of laugh at my name, then you might get a bit offended. But if you make an attempt, I think that's fine. It's a universal thing. We all have names. That's that's one of the things about humans is we all have names, and some of them are harder for, for other people to say than than others. And I thought it was interesting that privilege got brought into it because it struck me as being a very kind of almost this sounds a bit glib but it's almost a privileged thing to do to talk about the privilege of not pronouncing mm. names correctly because i can tell you that there's plenty of countries around the world where they do not give a shit about how your name is meant to be pronounced they will just call you whatever is easiest for them and to be honest that doesn't bother me either but with ben white he has made it very clear that he wants to be called benjamin white so we should refer to him as benjamin white i think that's a bit personally i think that's a bit um Fiddly. We had this conversation. Ben, Benjamin was a was a name we considered for Ed before settling on Ed, and I said that I, I really like the name Ben. It's a great name, good solid name, good name. Don't meet don't you don't meet many bad Bens. And Kate was like, oh, don't quite gentle as well. <laughs> they are gentle. They are I mean, particularly if yeah. they're Earth sign. But Kate was like, yeah, it's Ben's okay, but I I call the child Benjamin, and I was like, you, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call the child Benjamin. It's it's too long. It's it's unwieldy. But apparently Benjamin White likes to be Benjamin White, so we should call him Benjamin White. Are we are we going to ignore his his attempts to do that like we did Andrew Cole and like we did Deli Alley who wants to be Deli without the alley? Well Deli Alley's tricky because it's yeah, that is. I'm not, the, I'm not questioning the reasons why people are asking. No, 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 I'm no. saying that people generally just ignored them. The, it's yeah, well the, the but the reason for that is convention that it's very hard to refer to somebody it doesn't necessarily come naturally to refer to someone just by their first name. And it, his reasons are totally valid and we should yes, call him Delhi. That's why but, That's why I'm not questioning the, the reasons why. I'm just saying that nobody bothered to, but it's, it's to respect I, those reasons. I think we did change with, with... I think when he was still playing, we did change with Andrew Cole. I think he yeah. became Andrew Cole. And since he's retired, he's kind of become Andy again because he's remembered as Andy Cole. But what, certainly in the latter years of his career, he was always referred to yeah. as Andrew Cole. So I would... I would hope Arsenal playing tonight as we're recording. I would hope that the commentators will refer to him exclusively as Benjamin White, if that's what he wants to be called. OK, well, in that case, having uh, having had that opportunity to clear that up, I can uh, do this again. So when previewing Monday's game between Arsenal and Crystal Palace, Benjamin White was asked what he shared with the Palace manager, Patrick Vieira. His answer was akin to that of a GCSE history student being pressed on the reasons for the Corn Laws being repealed in the 19th century with a shrug <laughs> and a mumble. He just went, he wore the number four. Uh, he offered it up with the emphasis on the question mark. He wore the number four. Um, turns out Arsenal's new Permatan defender has never watched football. He loves playing it, but isn't interested in it outside of the matches in which he's involved. Refreshingly honest, maybe, but how rare. Are capped five times more for England than Ben White? Sorry. Are capped five times more for England than Benjamin White, former football? It might be a useful resource here. As we ask, do you have to be a football fan to be a football player? Chinch. It, this is always something that I felt reasonably guilty about. Is is not maybe loving the game as I. But again, I've had to rethink did, all the players that were around me. I I just presumed I felt differently to them, and I was really unusual in that I I don't even I I enjoyed playing, but I I I enjoy maybe playing and watching other sports far more than football. But when you when you become a professional footballer. I was certainly in my early early years. I felt a bit uncomfortable. Feeling, well, why don't I love the game 
as much seemingly as everyone around me does. But clearly, as Benjamin White was saying, not everybody does love the game from when they were kind of five years old, first kicking a ball around the field at the back of their house. And they've just kind of been, and it's amazing. And I just love this and I can't get enough of it. And I want to do it forever. There's maybe more people like myself and Benjamin out there who don't, we're not saying we don't want to do it. We have a talent to do it, but it, it shouldn't make you feel bad that you don't maybe love it or enjoy it as much as, as the players around you. But I did fit on another reason why I felt different to people in the, in the dressing room because I, I knew that certain people did feel very differently about the job that they were doing but I did see and again I don't apologise for it it was a job I got married young I had a mortgage I had kids it had to provide for myself and my family and the money was was good but it wasn't like it was today so you did have to work hard and stay fit and, and kind of when you had injuries get back playing again because it, it was a it was a job but it was something certainly when I was maybe 17, 18, 19 maybe even younger than that I felt you know, getting up on a Sunday morning to go and play, I thought, well, yeah, it's I, I can do it and I will do it, and I'm sure we'll, we'll I'll play well and the team will win. And that tended to, what tended to happen, but I didn't have that instinctive love for the game. I maybe actually enjoy what I'm doing now and what watching the game gives me more enjoyment, strangely, than playing it. Yes, and and that's why I mentioned at the beginning of that 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 was the case for you as a player, and and, and you very much changed, I think, since then. But the the differential that we need to make here is that that Benjamin White spoke about the fact that he loves playing it, but outside of the ninety minutes where he's involved in the game, he has no interaction with football whatsoever. Now these are two sides of the same coin, I would suggest, uh, because there is not that, as you say, Chinch, within you that instinctive feeling that you want to surround yourself with football, with the game yeah. at all times. But there is very much the difference for Benjamin White between playing and then life outside of football. But, it, but it, it, is sim- it is similar to what you're saying. But it must be tricky for him because, again, footballers do a lot more kind of study of their own performances, of their own team performances, of the opposition. So actually, it was probably easier in my day to step away. Once you'd finished training, basically the rest of the day was yours. You didn't have maybe these extra meetings that players have now and the analysis that, that players individually and collectively go through. So it must be maybe harder for Benjamin to completely... You still do have, of course, time for yourself of an evening... Is he going to tune in and watch a South American match or watch a, a damn good film or a box set? He'll probably do what I do, did and still do, and watch something. It just doesn't, unless I'm working, that's when I, I do watch um, teams or games, is when I'm working a, a team in, say, a month's time. or th- That's when I tend to, I feel obliged to, rather than, I can't wait to watch this match, and maybe he feels the same. Is there an element, Chinch, of, of some subterfuge amongst the football community is this a bit of a a taboo that there are in fact probably more people like yourself and Benjamin White yet footballers in the main feel a responsibility to give the impression yes yes they love this game and and they, they have to they have to come out and speak as though it is an obsession for them otherwise they are they are committing some kind of crime against their profession. Well, I suppose if you're a fan, a paying fan of a club, and you've got players, whether it be one player, ten players, saying, you know, I, I do like playing, but again, it's not the be-all and end-all for me. Do do fans, would fans think that's, oh, I can understand that, they're human beings, they're not going to necessarily love what they do. We all don't feel like that about the jobs that we do. Or maybe being, yes, and that's why I felt I tended to keep quiet about it but again we, we you had the opportunity back when I was playing that you could just step away and, and live that other life that you wanted to live as well now it's like you're Batman uh, <laughs> yeah it's better to be Batman than the Riddler 
yeah. be a, a nasty man. So I'm yeah. glad you went for a, an excellent superhero with a bit of an edge. I think that that would be me. But yeah, maybe it's it's more difficult. Maybe because of the I didn't do any media. Maybe doing the media, uh, the involvement that the players have after training and stuff with analysis and everything else, it is maybe a little bit more difficult to to hide if you need to hide away the fact that it it isn't the be all and end all. But I, I don't know. As, as fans, do do you expect that your players absolutely love? playing for your club and playing football, would you be surprised if they said, well, actually, no, no, I, I do prefer to go away and do a bit of gardening? I think, I mean, I think the the analysis side of it and kind of watching forthcoming opponents, I would imagine that even someone like Benjamin White, Rob Green was another one. Rob Green didn't particularly like football. He, he liked cricket. Um, is that Robert might, Green or is that Rob? I think, I believe he's still Rob Green. But is I it, do, I have always thought that ever since I learned that you didn't like football and Rob Green no, the, was No, 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 no. On, it's not that I don't well, like yeah, yeah, football. yeah. yeah. That you he, hate, he despises it. He just, hates it. It's not that I don't like it. I literally it makes can't his stand skin it. itch. <laughs> but I, do, I have wondered whether it's something to do with with chins. That people with large chins are trapped in jobs that, that they don't like. You and Rob right. Green. There's a pattern. Benjamin White's chin is a normal size. Me and Rob Green is not a pattern. <laughs> three three in journalism chin. I can assure you is a pattern. We can find an, an that's the second source. Three. Three's a trend. One's a coincidence. Two's a hint. Three's a trend. Right. The uh, if we can find a third large-chinned footballer who doesn't enjoy their work, then <laughs> we have got a trend. The no, I mean, but I presume that like the analysis side of it and watching forthcoming opponents that will fall into the bit that Benjamin White does because it's his job and he enjoys his job. But I don't doing think it's all the this case stuff that... you see, doing all the stats and facts and figures and formations and numbers. I love. All that, but that's not actually watching. That's the game. Uh, but it's you're not, an accountant. It's not. Yes. Yeah, so I think I should be. Any tax returns you want doing, send them my way. But I do love all that. That's what I tend to really, really enjoy. And that's why analytics and everything. I'd rather do that and sit here for an hour and a half doing the numbers than watching a game. I could watch a game literally. I, I just for formations personnel. I'd watch a game for maximum 10, 15 minutes a half, and then I just switch it off because I've seen what I need to see. But maybe you've got like a is that does that count as kinesthetic learning? If he's if he's if he's writing it down. I don't uh, know. But maybe that's that's how you absorb information. You're it is less, I, yes. Yeah. Less of less a visual learner and more a whatever ah, that is learner. Yeah. So that might be to do with how your brain works, if indeed it works at all. The um functions the, very well, thank you. It yes. Reasonably so I, I, well. I would imagine that Ben White is doing all this Benjamin White is doing all the stuff that that comes along with being a footballer, he's doing the analysis. I don't think it's the case that when when like Arsenal are calling a, they're calling like a team meeting to go through the next week's opponents. He'd be like, so, "Sorry, Mikel, I just, I just find this boring." And <laughs> walking out, like he'll be doing that. I I think that the reason that everyone has to buy into this myth that that everyone loves the game itself is because of the idea that. As we've said, like fans would be offended if they thought that you would it was a transactional thing, that you're aware that you're doing a job that lots and lots of other people would, would really like to do. So it sounds inherently kind of pompous and privileged to say, actually, I'm you know, I'm not really that, that fussed by yeah. this. And also because that's what fans expect the, the players that particularly in this country, I think we've always had this idea that, you know, heart and industry and passion are the defining characters of of a successful team. Characteristic, the defining characteristics of a, of a successful team, and that if you say this is just a job to me, the immediate suspicion would be that you don't have heart or passion, and it it, it would potentially weaken your claim, both 
to to adoration for the from the fans but also i guess in in youth systems if you if you're coming through and you're the kid who doesn't really care about watching football then your coaches might think well actually maybe they're they're not as dedicated to to this as you need to be to succeed but the one thing i would say where i think there's a slight element of hypocrisy from fans on that most fans only watch their team i i would query as we've talked about before whether most fans love football that and i'm not saying this is someone who you know will watch like chile in second division football i won't i've got other things to do in my life but if there's a game on whether it's in italy or germany or france or spain or england or the championship or scotland or wherever if there's a game on i will pause and if i didn't have other stuff to do i would happily sit and watch any game of football i would challenge quite a lot of people who, who do who do that to you know have kids and stuff and see see how much they're able to still do it but I gen- genuinely love watching football and there are a lot of people out there who, who love watching football, what, what, whatever form that football takes. But I think the vast majority of fans need to be emotionally invested in the game to enjoy it. And I would say that a player saying, this is a job to me, I want to do it as well as I can, I want to succeed for myself, but I don't take any particular pleasure or interest in the broader game, is no different to a fan who only watches their team or the games that are, that are directly relevant to their team. There is a phenomenon that I have noticed increasingly recently when like clips of great goals go on social media. And say, for example, a fan comments on it because they don't like the commentary. One of the things that, they, that I've seen said is that they accuse the commentator of clearly not enjoying football enough because they haven't in their mind, got excited enough about the goal or they haven't described it in the way that they would have described it. But as, as Rory has just intimated, it's very possible that they are viewing that through the, the prism of being a fan of that team. So that moment for them is huge. They, they can't see it from the viewpoint of somebody who is describing it from a point of neutrality. And even if you're a footballer playing for a club, you you will have a degree of passion about winning the game and doing well in your profession, but it is unreasonable for a supporter to believe that that player will feel as strongly, as intertwined with the club as they do, because that's been a lifelong obsession for them. It's a, it's a, it's a profession for the player. It's a job. It might only be a, a short-term arrangement. And, and that's that's why it's quite refreshing to hear what Benjamin White had to say because I, I suspect that there are many more footballers who probably feel that way but feel obliged to keep up the pretense that they, they feel as strongly for the club as the supporters do where actually their their feelings are driven by doing well for themselves, their teammates, their manager, for their employer but it isn't necessarily intertwined with the, the history in the same way it is for a supporter, you know, but the rival, you know, the, the you know, a big derby game. That that's one where I have to, you know, Hugh and I in particular have done this on numerous occasions, and I'm sure Rory has as well, where you've interviewed a player ahead of a big derby and they've spoke very passionately about the sense of occasion and, and how they have this added responsibility to win this game. And it's always felt like one of those conversations where you know they are playing along and, and, and you as the questioner are having to, to accept that as well. It's interesting you're talking about there the the, the commentary on goals because I, I cover the Newcastle-Tottenham game and there's that craziness before kick-off. They score within two minutes. But I was very really conscious of rather than me just 
kind of joining in with that that wave of emotion from Newcastle fans saying it's a goal, it's a goal, it's the first goal of the new era. I I really t- I have to analyse this goal. Who 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 specifically are you mocking there? <laughs> my some, some my, my alter ego. But you know, rather than just just get caught up in the wave of emotion and just just squawk anything. I felt no, I had to because I talked about what a well-constructed goal it was, overlapping fullbacks, the movement of Callum. I thought I've still got to be professional and do my job. And people listening to me analyse it would say, "Well, he didn't seem very excited about that goal." Well, all the excitement is around me; you can hear that. But I'm not there just to go, "Ah, this is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing." Well, and th- well, I'm not there for that. The fans are there for that. I'm there to analyse. Maybe I should do more of it. But the fans, <laughs> the fans are there to provide that backdrop. I'm there to. And I'm like, that's what I'm there for. And I re- as Martin was, again, waffling, not waffling on, but was doing his commentary on the goal and what it meant and all this kind of stuff and Amanda Staveley's dancing around. I, I've got, I, I was really conscious of saying this is such an important moment in, in Newcastle's timeline, but certainly for me as well. And I got to yeah. nail it and get the analysis of the goal. And I even went back to talking about St. Maximan's role, the simplicity of his, his pass. And I wanted to go back to it because I was determined to say, I want, whether people noticed or not, I got to do my job regardless of the circumstances. And maybe Newcastle fans watching that will think, wait a minute, he wasn't very excited. That's the first goal we've scored under the new owners. But I'm not necessarily there just to, to go along with that. I have to separate myself from it. Yeah. That's um, a good point. I think everyone wants that full-on Peter Drury, Costas Manalas <laughs> yeah. commentary for every goal. And that there's, there's, other yeah. things, there's other things at play, which is the fact that, I mean, I guess we're exposed more now to South American commentary to those kind of, those those excessive moments of South American celebration that you tend to get where the, the commentators are, I think, involved in some sort of competition to see who can do the longest goal at. So there's... there's... If I did the goalie, 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 if I just basically... How do you think that would go down? It, it, uh, would, it would go uh, down in people's memories, would, wouldn't it? It would, it would be hilarious. Yes. And my final... When I win the lottery and I get my... And I won't tell anybody, I'm, I'm going to have to do something along those lines to go out and then just drop the mic and leave be, the stage. It, it, it has to be, be like 4-0 four, four to a team and then the other team <laughs> scores <laughs> one. Consolation goal. C- completely inconsequential goal. Martin, just look at What? I like the Spanish ones that that do the beeps through it, so they don't go. That's the that's the that's them that's hitting the, the call button on their ISDN machine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, pr- I presume it's some sort of thing that came from I don't know, like when radio was being used to tell ships in the harbour that goals had been scored or something. That it was it's like an alert sign that there's a goal that's gone in, but it's um got to be it's, louder than the waves is what you're telling me <laughs> something like that but it's bizarre whatever it is the yeah is i think it's code to deliver your match report <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just quickly on that the, the, particularly in europe those radio commentaries are provided by local radio mm. and so therefore they do have the emotional connection with the goal and that's yeah. why they might be giving a, a commentary that the fans feel is commensurate to the well, action yeah. No one is. They are invested. It's not. It's not. And, and obviously, we have local radio in this country. But generally speaking, the the commentary that people hear is the network, the national commentary, and those are the people who don't have the emotional connection. Yeah, no one's for a minute criticising that tradition. It's just that I think because we're exposed to it, mm, exactly. Th- combined with the general timber of the way that football is covered now, where everything is the most important thing that's ever happened, I think fans generally, uh, and this isn't meant to be pejorative expect there to be a level of emotional excitement attached to every event 
that is not realistic or professional. That, that you know, if you think about the way that, like, if you think about the way that teams report their own side's goals on Twitter, mm. it's always that kind of Phil Hay esque massive goal in big capital letters, and there's loads of exclamation marks, and there's a there's like a a little gif of the player celebrating, and it, it's all kind of a pitch of frenzy that yeah commentator saying and that is you know and that i'm full partridge but and you know and he taps it in and it's 2-1 to sunderland is gonna feel a bit like a an anticlimax and i think it's it's what we've been conditioned to it to expect so, a goal to feel so would like. i be would i be criticized then by newcastle fans mainly but the wider foot if they're watching that newcastle game and i just analyze it in the way that i feel i'm there to do would they say Steve was saying about the commentators yeah. not seeming to enjoy. Would I be criticising it? You don't. You clearly don't like football because you didn't get caught up in the emotion. You actually did a, a damn fine job on the goal. What I meant to do, but I, would I be criticised for that? Can I, I think can more I... the commentator than than the pundit. I think there's an, an there's an understanding that that the, the co-coms mm. is there to provide context. Yeah. I think I mean, Martin I, Martin Tyler, who I don't know. I don't know. I'm just calling him Martin. Martin <laughs> Ty, Mr. Tyler is regularly criticised for sounding angry when a goal is scored. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but the that there is a kind of regular accusation that he is... that The intonation of his voice tells you whether he wanted the goal to be scored or not. I, I, I would okay. imagine in, in every way that is false and it's just his style of commentary. He's desperately trying to pull his back <laughs> from the abyss. <laughs> we are a little bit inside baseball. Um, but, the, but, Chinch, if I can blow a little bit of smoke uh, up your... Fairly wide. Behind. Have you got your hunting horn? <laughs> it, is, it is. It is. Light a cigar. Me. Get your hunting horn and blow away. <laughs> there is. There, you, you pitched it right because the point that you made earlier is that the atmosphere of the crowd is telling you about the emotional context of what is happening. Your job is to provide within that and your tone of voice and as Roy used excellent word timber or timbre that you that you are able to reflect that whilst telling the no timbre. We're not French. I think timber. it's a French word. Let's all just make as you said earlier Rory it's important to make as much effort as we can it's not just in Tambre Lake is it <laughs> restaurant <laughs> is a French word you don't say restaurant do you come on don't be a pun. <laughs> although ironically my mum does oh lovely stuff and that's why it came to your mind no um, it's the best example shall, shall, shall we go to a restaurant a what mum what are you talking about <laughs> Seriously, we, we, yeah, it's we know, hilarious. But any know, type, not just a French restaurant, any type no, of restaurant. I mean, she obviously doesn't. She's in her seventies in COVID times. She doesn't go to restaurants. It might kill her. But the um, the yeah, no, she's always just said restaurant. So in you, a don't French to, you don't go to a restaurante <laughs> if it's Italian. No, it's not like if you don't to like to like ask. It's not like a restaurante. It's not if you go to Nanda. I'm going to do that one. Uh, Nanda's in South Africa. It's not. It's not like you go to a restaurant. The um, <laughs> it's always a restaurant. It's hilarious. But he he obviously does that with musical terms. Do you say arpeggio in an Italian accent? Uh, no, but um, maybe I should. You should. Um, but Chinchi, you you reflected it perfectly by providing the content, which was what was necessary, but within the the yeah. the kind of the atmosphere and your your tone of voice. You weren't you weren't doing a what I term a Steve Claridge, which is at the moment of great excitement and passion. You decide to so so you you got it right. Um, Martin Tyler's job was to partly reflect the emotion with the words that he used. So, so he is, if you like, the, the conduit between what is happening for Newcastle fans and then and then you. So you did you did do an excellent job. And yes, we will try and bring it back now to what, what we were talking about. <laughs> 
but Steve's going to come in first. No, but it all ties together from the point of view of, look, the supporters are there, the fans are there to create the fervour, the excitement, to, to reflect how critical that moment is. To bring it back to the players, to bring it back to the example that uh, we're using with Benjamin White, is that as a fan, surely what you want is a professional but passionate job from your players. You want a victory. You don't want to come away from the game going, do you know what? Benjamin White made a couple of really costly mistakes there and and that's a big reason why we lost the game. But he kissed the badge a couple of times and and that's what's important. So I I don't have any issue whatsoever with, with Ben White saying, do you know what? It's a job. I come. I do my best. I deliver to a high quality. And when I go away, I... I may be declenched by doing something that doesn't involve football. And is, is that an issue? I don't think it is. No, I think your use of the word declench is an issue. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. No, I like the, that, Steve. De, yeah. de, declenche, I think you're fine. Yeah. The, the, one, the one thing I would say is I do wonder whether the more you absorb of football, and this shows for players and fans, the more you absorb of football as a whole, the the more from a fan's point of view the more knowledgeable you are the more you're able to put things in perspective and in context and the best example of that is always always England at a major tournament where and it it doesn't really apply anymore but it was though it was always the case that there was this assumption that England's players were amazing because we watched them week in week out we were told how great they were we 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 had this belief, even when it wasn't true, that the Premier League was the best league in the world. And then we'd get to a major tournament and we'd be surprised that the other teams also had good players. And it's, you still see it a lot with, with kind of African and Asian nations, that there's an assumption that they are bad and that they, they will not be able to match up to European countries. And often look, European countries, particularly the ones that have industrialised youth development, are, are the strongest in the world, no question about that. But, you know, Senegal will have an amazing team. There will be players who you have not heard of playing for countries in Africa and Asia and South America and and the kind of Eastern Europe, Central Europe, the, the non the non superpowers who are really good at football. That Danish team team in the summer, there weren't many household names in that, apart from Christian Eriksen. A lot of them, even Jakob Mahler wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't have seen a lot of him unless they were watching a lot of Italian football. And there won't be many people in a in a global sense who watch a lot of Atalanta because their fans will and people who really love Serie A will. Yeah. But most other people won't have seen a lot of Jakob Mahler. But he's a brilliant player. And that, that has always been true for England, that there seems to be a surprise that you get to the World Cup or the Euros. And these teams that you think you are better than are better than you because they also have amazing player, players. It's why when, when, when a kind of a wunderkind comes through in English football, there's this assumption that they might be the greatest player in the world or that they might, you know, that this generation might, might lead England to success. Well, it might, but it might be that the Spanish or the French or the Italians or the Brazilians or the, yeah, the Senegalese might have an equally good generation coming through because these things don't happen in a vacuum. And I do wonder whether for players, there's something that's, there's a, there's a parallel, which is the more football you watch, the more you know about different ideas, different systems, different teams, different strengths, different ways of, of, of interpreting a role that's all knowledge and information that might make you better so while I I don't think you need to love football as a whole to be an excellent footballer and Benjamin White like like Andrew George Hinchcliffe clearly a clearly an excellent footballer you do wonder whether there maybe is a bit that he that it might make him slightly better to watch as much football as possible and you speak 
you speak to certainly a lot of the greats, like the absolute greats, they watch a lot of football. And that, that I suspect, is not unrelated. There is the other end of the spectrum, which, and I said, I used the phrase earlier, love this game, Patrice Evra, who, when he arrived at Manchester United, was so obsessed not just with football, but the club that he was joining, is that he went out of his way to learn more about the history of United so that he better appreciated what he was getting into and could also speak more eloquently about the significance of big occasions, could hark back to the the big historical moments of the past as well as the intensity of the rivalry with, say, Liverpool when those came along. So... Benjamin White is clearly not the the archetype footballer. Neither, I would suspect, is is Patrice Evra. The truth probably lies somewhere mm-hmm. in in the middle. But not all footballers are the same. You're allowed to to have a broad spectrum of approaches to going about to your professionalism. I think what Rory's saying. Um... A good player can become even better if you had that added interest and you do the extra little bit of work that maybe that interest that road would it would take you down. You would become more informed and it would improve you. So it can be quite limiting to think like how I did, and it was just it, that was just how what I was like. Benjamin White, presumably the set. If you did have a, a bit more of a love or an enjoyment of the game, you would go naturally out there to to find out a bit more, learn a bit more, and improve yourself. But but look, at the risk of disagreeing with both Rory and Chinch, if Benjamin White doesn't have that love for the game outside of playing it, is forcing himself to watch more, to absorb more, mm. going to make him better? Or will he find that experience frustrating and unproductive? Yeah. Yeah. Is he not better off actually saying, no, I'm going to go, when I relax, I'm going to get away from the game so that when I am required to be good at it, I can give it my full attention and enjoy it for the reasons that I enjoy it. If, if, you, were, if you were actually to take somebody who has his mindset and say, no, no, you will get better by watching more football, by absorbing more tactical information, by reading more about it, about understanding more about the history and the development of the game. That's not going to work with, for somebody with that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that entirely. I, I, I guess I wonder if, if the, the one thing that always makes up the kind of the fabric of, of, the, of the very, very best players, and Benjamin White's a brilliant footballer, don't get me wrong, is that they also have that ability to absorb more knowledge, or even someone like Jamie Carragher, who who wasn't the most talented footballer, and and had to work at his career in a way that you know someone like Wayne Rooney probably didn't, as Wayne Rooney had this sort of abundance of natural talent. Although Rooney also a consumer of a lot of football, Carragher I think watched an awful lot of football to understand the ideas more. So maybe maybe it's not that you need to love football in the round to excel at it but it can be something that can take you to another level because of the level of knowledge and information that you can acquire through watching more football. Carrot, I think, watched a lot of, like, the Saki AC Milan teams because, which would have been, I mean, he'd have been a kid, I guess, when they were playing, but they th- that was how he learned kind of a lot of the tips and the ideas and the hints of the, of kind of top-class defending. And I think that is something that you can all, you can always learn. It's not... It's not a, that's not a controversial point. Maybe it's one thing that some players have and some players don't, and the players who have it have a slight edge. And you could say, and Benjamin Mike, who who has articulated in that short 
clip that was made available uh, of his interview uh, ahead of the game that is now for you taking place. I hope he didn't have a terrible game. Uh, is that <laughs> completely undermine everything we said? Is that he feels like he is essentially busy, and so when he leaves his job after training or after a match, he has stuff to do. And that could be equally healthy. And he feels that like it is healthy to be able to have those interests outside of football and things that take up his time that aren't watching football. And also he might say, he didn't say this, but he might say that that's kind of essentially what coaching is, is that coaching has the ability to draw together all these things, the, the Saki AC Milan, for example, and to bring that to bear for a player like him to learn from. So he's still getting access to that information, but it is being disseminated through his coaches rather than it being kind of homework or self-motivating that, that he finds that out. Um, we, we did kind of speak about something similar when back in SPM 164, we talked about do, do, do amateurs love football more than professionals? And we focused on that time mainly about us, the amateurs, um, rather than chinch the professional. So we've been able to kind of uh, redress that balance a little bit today. But after one uh, SPM 164, we, we got a few emails, which I would like to, uh, just a couple of which, uh, reflect now because it is relevant to this conversation that we're having. Rory Crutchfield, for example, emailed this. Dear Mr. Fantastic, The Thing, The Human Torch and Rory. Uh, so you're either a, either one of the Fantastic Four or you're uh, just any sort of uh, superhero. Uh, since the beginning, that might have made reference to, yeah, to something that, that happened before. Superhero in his own right. Yes, there we go. Uh, since the beginning of the year, I've been flying. This is not this year. This is last year. Since the beginning of the year, I've been flying through your quite good podcast. Uh, learning about the relationship Chinch has with football, for example, always reminded me slightly of another former player. And having just uh, listened to episode 164, I was struck again by the connection to Spurs left back and Cameroon international Benoit Asuikoto. He seemed quite well known for his attitude towards football, regarding it as a job and a means to earn a living, not necessarily enjoying it, but realising he was talented and pursuing it as a career. In a 2011 interview, he remarked, I have never bought into the hypocrisy of football, but perhaps I'm more strident in my views now. I'm lucky and appreciate what I have, but football is just a job, a means to an end. There are more important things in life than kicking a ball around. Yes, I play for the money, but then doesn't everybody who gets up in the morning and goes to work? They do it to provide for their family. It infuriates me when footballers go on about playing for the shirt. I think they should be held accountable for it when they kiss the badge and six months later clear off for a better payday. And that's Rory Crutchfield. And Buffalo Joe Highland emailed actually twice about this um, and offers these examples of other players uh, alongside Benoit Asuikotu. Um, David Batty, he says, well rumoured to be living off grid as some sort of doomsday prepper now. I think that's not true. Is that not true? I think I don't. I, I think David Batty has disappeared from public art, from public view. I don't think he's a doomsday prepper. <laughs> <laughs> I do not comment on the veracity of the suggestions. I'm merely repeating what Joe he doesn't, said. He, he doesn't have a Twitter account or go on TalkSport. He must be a doomsday prepper. <laughs> Maybe he's just got a very high profile job with the government as an emergency plan. Yes, he is part of Cobra every time. Um, if Seth Johnson continues, Joe Highland, if Seth Johnson is to be believed, towards the end of his career, he wouldn't even talk to his teammates after games or training, would jump in his car without so much of it as even changing his muddy kit or showering to get away from the game as quickly as possible. Apocryphal maybe, doomsday prepper perhaps not. No, that is true that, that Batty, uh, Chinch will know because he would, would have been in, in England squads with yes, him, but, yes. but Batty was always, he drove up to train, Blackburn and at Leeds, drove up to training, got out of his car in his kit, trained, got back in his car in his kit, went home, didn't didn't want to, and I think everyone quite liked him, but he didn't want to spend any more time around the football team than he needed to. 
Uh, Jimmy Bullard is the next suggestion. You may think that a man who presents Soccer AM would enjoy and know a lot about football. However, it is my belief that Jimmy Bullard is only a footballer because fishing, his true passion, is less profitable. On a recent appearance of Celebrity Tipping Point... Uh, Bullard, despite this, this is a, a game show which fills many hours daytime TV uh, in this country, if you're listening from abroad. Bullard displayed abysmal general knowledge, but also wasn't even able to guess who won Euro 2016. Even people who don't like football could probably get that one right, especially when, as he was, they are presented with three options from which to pick. Uh, he goes on, Gabriel Batistuta, famously preferred polo. Daniel Agger, purportedly only became a footballer because he was better at it than playing rock music, now runs tattoo and golf companies. Uh, David Bentley thought the game was too professional and opened clubs and restaurants in summer, sunnier climes. And Danny Rose admits he doesn't enjoy football and wants to completely leave the game post-retirement. There's a bit of a Spurs slash left-back theme going yeah, on there, Yeah, there is, isn't there? Signed for Spurs. Yes, it's interesting that, isn't it? But I suppose for, for players, it is more important more than ever in terms of mental health as well is being comfortable in your own skin and if you if you feel as all the people that you just mentioned there feel that there's nothing wrong with that it's it's ultimately what you are and you have to behave in a way that that makes you feel comfortable it's when you have to adapt what you do because you feel you have to fit in i'm not so sure it's the same today as it was 20 25 years ago in terms of the camaraderie in a in a, a dressing room so i think it's vitally important again that players don't feel different or wrong if they see playing football as a, a moneymaker, as a, as a job, as a way of providing for your family, because that's absolutely what it is. And you shouldn't apologise for that or be ashamed of it. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing a broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. When you get into your 50s, as I have my early 50s, it, new experiences are, are vital to keep the body and mind fresh. You all are going to experience this in the next five to ten years, I presume, looking at the state of you all. Um, so, have we mentioned it in this pod, in previous pods, I was covering the, the Newcastle-Tottenham football match, which was uh, an experience, a different experience because of, of two things that happened. I know, Rory, you were there, weren't you? I and was. That's maybe why the crowd were, were so excited. It wasn't the takeover. It was Smith is in the building. But I have, it was... I said it. I think the first line I came out that I've been at, I played at St James's Park a number of times. And I've been here covering Newcastle, but the the atmosphere pre kickoff and the first couple of minutes and when Newcastle scored was even with headphones on was absolutely extraordinary. Of course, we've all got misgivings about the ownership and what's happened to Newcastle, but purely from a in terms of of the the joy of those Newcastle fans of that first goal going in and the celebrations that was I can't remember. A game where the atmosphere and the the wave of emotion has has been as big, and then of course that was juxtaposed, was declenched by the the medical emergency that we had, and that's the first game I think in eleven years of covering football that something like that has happened. And to see, I think the fans and the players, certainly the Tottenham players, Regulon and and Dyer react in the way that they did. It kind of restored your faith a little bit in terms of how maybe footballers see themselves and see the fans, even opposing fans. So again, in one game, you get the, the complete high of that first two minutes and then the worry and the dread and the fear that spread through everyone in that stadium, players included, and how they reacted in a, a really human way, I, I thought was incredible. So I learned something. I learned something from those two separate instances. And again, hopefully... That medical move, I'll never see something like that again at a stadium. But it was it was quite extraordinary. And the change in the the feeling around the ground. Obviously, Tottenham scored a few goals and it did flatten everything. But actually, that 
to go from those first two minutes to, to what we had at about 40 minutes was truly extraordinary. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also, buy the merch. We've not mentioned the merch. Have we not mentioned the merch at any point during this podcast? That's an absolute disgrace. tpublic.com. Just search for Setpiece Menu or SPM. You can also buy tickets to the live show at the National Football Museum on Thursday, the 4th of November. Just head to nationalfootballmuseum.com or follow the link that we've posted on Twitter and Facebook. And folk in London and the surrounding areas, literally, if, it, if it's within two hours of a train journey, you count. Clear commuter your di- belt. Commuter belt. Uh, clear your diaries for December. We're coming to the big smoke. Uh, details in the coming days. Keep your eyes and ears peeled. Uh, please subscribe, share, rate and reviews. We humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. It was very strange at Newcastle on Sunday. Was that, that was the abiding thing for me. Was It was just the strangeness. And I think that's summed up by the fact that Eric Dyer scored what is without question the weirdest own goal I've ever seen in the flesh. And it wasn't in the top 15 weird things about the day. It was, it was just I mean, all, like seeing the people like dressed up in thobes and headdresses and carrying Saudi flags around their shoulders. And then I, I was walking in, walking in as the Tottenham fans came through and they were chanting things about tea towels, which feels, to be honest, racist to me. But then is it racist if it's a lot of white people dressed up in kind of national Saudi dress, is that in itself, right? If you're being racist to people who are being, doing something that is definitely cultural appropriation as like fancy dress, is that, that was very confusing. I, I would like to um, credit the Spurs fans who came wearing the, the, the rainbow Spurs scarves from the Spurs LGBT see that catching on. Um, supporters group. I thought that was, that's a really, really, Impressive. Is there and... a Dalek attack going on? No, it's the washing machine. It's just oh, impossible. It? Anyway, yeah. I, I... You've, made, you've made some excellent points here, Rory, which have been massively undermined by the old washing machine. Yeah, I'd like the, the, the one that what really impressed me was the was the, the Spurs fans who came wearing the rainbow scarves, which I, I, I presume are the, um, the scarves of the Tottenham LGBT supporters groups. And I think that is something that, that will catch on and is a is a is a clever and uh, defiant and proud way of showing your opposition to what